You're listening to a podcast on Catholic Saints. This podcast is produced by the Augustan Institute, an apostolate helping Catholics understand, live, and share their faith. I'm Tim Gray, president of the Augustan Institute, and joining me today is a good friend of mine, Dr. Christopher Bloom, who is the dean of the graduate school here at the Augustan Institute. And we are very excited to share with you this topic of St. Philip Neri on his feast day. And uh, St. Philip Neri was an extraordinary saint. In fact, when his funeral came in Rome, uh, all of Rome came out, crowded the, uh, the, the church where he was at. There was a line for two days to, to see his body and give respects, which reminds me of the funeral of St. John Paul II yes. in Rome, Chris. I mean, yes. that was all of Rome came and, and there, the crowds were, you know, 10 hours wait mm-hmm. in line to see St. John Paul II. And really, mm-hmm. you haven't had that kind of a, of a, a wait since St. Philip Neri. I mean, that, those two great men who were great apostles and uh, amazing saints. Yeah, that's very interesting, Tim. You know, Philip Neri and John Paul II do have something in common. You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. John Paul II, of course, as a young man, was, was an actor. He was full of life and spirit, and he wrote plays, and he liked to gather people together to, to act out these wonderful moral dramas that uh, were so meaningful for them in a time of great trial, uh, mm-hmm. when the, uh, first the Nazis and then the Soviets were occupying Poland. And uh, John Paul II uh, used that, that, that medium as a way to draw people uh, closer to Christ. Uh, and this is, this is the same kind of strategy that Philip Neri would employ in his life, too. Yeah, Philip is known as a, a two things that strike me. As the, he's known as the apostle to Rome mm-hmm. in that he was uh, the second apostle. Obviously, Peter and Paul were the first apostles in the first century, but St. Philip Neri kind of has this title as Apostle to Rome because he evangelizes Rome at a time of great decadence, corruption, uh, really decay and decline in the church and in the culture in Rome. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Philip Neri has a ministry to Rome and he always had this heart to do mission work, right? The idea of going to India Mm -hmm. to where St. Francis de Sales goes and all these great missionaries are going off and taking great risks going around the world. And Philip had that desire for that, but he was called as his spiritual director in his own prayer life, Saul, to be an evangelist in Rome. So he was a reformer in Rome. We'll talk about his reforming. But then he's known for his great sense of humanity. I mean, this is a person who is full of life, full of uh, humanism, and, and he loved music, he loved singing, he loved stories. Mm-hmm. He just, he loved history, he just, and he loved people. I mean, he, this is a person who, mm-hmm. like St. John Paul II, was just, had this deep, authentic humanism that, that really comes through. I mean, you, you mm-hmm. see with Philip Neri, he, he was a practical joker. He had a great sense of humor, and yet he wasn't a buffoon. He was also very grave and had a deep interior life and took uh, prayer and, and sin seriously so he could be a great reformer. I mean, it's an amazing combination mm-hmm. uh, that you find in Philip. Mm-hmm. I don't know where you'd want to start with him, but let's start with his earlier life, yeah. how he comes to Rome. And yeah, I think that's, that's, a, good, that's a good place to begin, uh, certainly, Tim. Um, so he's born in Florence in 1515 to a reasonably prosperous middle-class family and has a good education there. He, you wouldn't necessarily know it from the way he 
uh, acted later in life, or rather the roles that he fulfilled later in life, because he was never a teacher in a classroom setting. He didn't leave behind any books, but, but this, is a, this is a man who um, had a, a, a wonderful sort of Renaissance education, uh, thanks to the Dominicans in Florence. And throughout his life, he had a love for the writings of St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, so he's a, a, man, a man of parts here, really, a really complicated fellow. Um, early on in life, it's not exactly clear to him what he's supposed to do. And so as a dutiful son, he accepts uh, an offer from, from his father and from an uncle to go an apprentice uh, for a couple of years down outside of, of Rome, near Monte Cassino, actually, by the Benedictine Abbey. And uh, I think this was a draper's business or something like this. In, in any event, it was a prosperous uh, a small business that he was poised to inherit from his uncle. And then somehow God spoke to him in a call, drew him away from that, and brought him to Rome at the age of 19 uh, in, in, a, in a really curious decision that we don't, we don't actually know a whole lot about. Yeah, it's really intriguing. I mean, he was really, you think about a 19-year-old, he was set up for success in the world. He was. You know, his uncle had no children, had no heir. He wanted to apprentice this boy and, and leave him the business. Mm -hmm. And so, so right away, Philip makes a choice. And we don't know what undergirded that choice, obviously, but God's call. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. it was, uh, but you know, but he, he leaves wealth. And later on, he'll refer to somebody, if I wanted to be wealthy, I could have been, a, you know, I could have been wealthy. Right. If I wanted riches, I could have been a wealthy man. But mm -hmm. he, that's not what he pursues. And so he goes to Rome and it takes him a while to find out what he's going to end up doing. I mean, he, mm -hmm. he stays with a, a family. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is what, mm -hmm. in 1534, mm -hmm. he, he goes to Rome and uh, takes a lodging with his family, tutors their children, mm -hmm. uh, and gets a, you know, basically room and board for that. Yeah, he does. And that goes on for 16 years, which is uh, really kind of an extraordinary thing. So he's, he's 19 when he comes to Rome. Uh, he's about 35 when his life takes uh, a, a, a change, uh, a sort of radical change, which we can, we can touch on with the Great Jubilee of 1550. But this, this period of his life, he's described uh, as uh, being kind of an urban hermit. Uh, yeah, I love that image because yeah. he's, he's reading at this time the, the Desert Fathers, right? Mm -hmm. These early ascetic church fathers who dedicate themselves to a time of prayer out in a, in a desert, away from civilization, and yet here is Philip in the heart of this urban center of, of Rome, mm -hmm. and yet he's, he is a hermit within the urban center. I mean, he's, he's dedicated to a life of prayer. He's visiting the hospitals, mm -hmm. so he's doing good works, helping to serve the sick, and then he, he ends up helping orphans, right? Uh, at the, uh, is that a little bit later towards this time? But no, it, that's, it, that's in this that, period. That, that period, right? Mm -hmm. So he's, he's out doing good works, but mm -hmm. it's a, there's no heavy obligations on him. There's a, uh, there's a, a, there's a time of prayer, uh, mm -hmm. kind of a quiet period for, for Philip. There is, and I think, I think the movie that we have on the foreign platform does a really good job with this part of St. Philip Neri's life. Uh, it shows him uh, traveling around the, the ruins and the catacombs of Rome. I mean, Rome, Rome had been sacked by uh, the imperial army in 1527, and here we are in the 1540s, and it's still just recovering uh, its, uh, 
you know, Rome, Rome in, the, in the fourth century had something like a million people in greater Rome, and at this point it's just a shell of that. It may have 30,000 people or something. So there's ruins everywhere, and he's wandering around with these packs of teenage boys trying to keep them out of trouble, saying things to them like, when should we begin to do good? You know, come with me. You know, he's uh, leading them uh, to Christ and, and keeping them out of trouble. Uh, very much like St. John Bosco will do 300 years later in, in Turin with the Orphans of Turin. And it's during this time that he has this extraordinary mystical experience. Uh, he was often praying in the catacombs late at night or through the night. And at one point, the Holy Spirit appeared to him, as, as he said, in the form of a ball of fire that entered into his mouth and threw him on the ground, which was cold, a flagstone uh, ground or a dirt piece of a dirt ground there in the catacombs, because his chest was burning. It was so hot that he wanted to cool off uh, his, his body. And then this episode left him with an enlarged uh, chest cavity. A couple of his ribs actually broke, they discovered, after, after his death. His heart was larger. It would palpitate. Uh, violently uh, when he was at prayer for the rest of his life and people were sort of aware of this. He was always very warm. Uh, it didn't wear a lot of clothing, you, you know, big heavy coats or things like that in the wintertime because his heart had this uh, kind of curious uh, gift of the Holy Spirit manifesting itself in an interior warmth. And that's sometime from this period in the 1540s when he's living this urban hermit existence. Yeah, it's extraordinary. And after he dies, of course, they, they find that his heart is very much enlarged and his rib cage had, had to expand, mm -hmm. broken, and healed yeah. uh, around that expanded heart. So that's some, just something they, they knew objectively was true. But yeah, that, that's just a, he really, uh, in a sense, I, one person referred to this in a, in a book called True Reformers, which goes through different saints at this time. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, I love how that book refers to this as probably that St. Philip Neri had the stigmata of the heart. Yes. I, I mm -hmm. thought that was really well said. That, for, is, that is well said. Just really depicts, it captures the heart of Philip Neri because he had an extended heart for, for everybody. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, he's, mm -hmm. he's um, you know, when you think about an, an apostle to uh, Rome or anywhere, you think of like St. Patrick. Uh, who's the apostle to Ireland? And he's baptizing all these souls, or, or uh, Saint Francis Xavier, who goes to India, and he's he's baptizing all these thousands of souls. And and Philip is in Rome, which is a Catholic city, a Catholic culture, so he's not baptizing. But what Philip does is he administers a different sacrament mm -hmm. significantly, doesn't he? With mm -hmm. the sacrament of confession, he becomes known for his hearing confession at all hours. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this, this brings us to the, that great transformation in Philip Neri's life. So uh, every, every 50 years, uh, the city of Rome celebrated a, a jubilee all through the medieval period, sometimes on the 25 year, but mostly on the 50s and the 100s. And this would bring thousands of pilgrims to Rome uh, in, in a way that uh, is really extraordinary for us. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure that we relate, we Catholics today relate to the city of Rome in quite the same way that our ancestors did. You know, for us, it's kind of a, a tourist place, right, where there's great big churches that we admire and then the person of the Holy Father. In the, in the medieval and early modern period, there was a very strong devotion to the saints whose relics are in Rome. 
And uh, so tens of thousands of people would come and uh, as just as we see in the pages of Chaucer or in other descriptions of, of pilgrimages in Europe from this time period, the medieval through the Renaissance time period, uh, all manner of people are coming who, who may be the halt and the lame or the blind or they may have serious sins on their conscience and they're doing this as an act of penance, walking hundreds and hundreds of miles to Rome. And so it was a great, there was a great need in these Jubilee years to take care of these people who often showed up uh, sick or uh, you know, famished or having no place to stay, being penniless and so on. And so what Neri did is he, he got joined to a confraternity led by a priest named Father Perziano Rosa. And they were, they were staffing a hospital and taking care of pilgrims. And through this experience of the, the whole summer of 1550, Father Perziano looked at, at, this, at this young layman, Philip Neri, this mystic layman, and said to himself, this, this man needs to be a priest. And so he convinced Philip Neri to pursue holy orders. And uh, over the next six to nine months, he went through the various uh, orders and, and was ordained a priest in 1551. And right out the gate began to devote himself uh, to hearing confessions. And for the, for the next half century, practically, uh, until his death in 1595, he would hear confessions dozens of hours a week, every day, starting early in the morning, uh, allowing himself to be interrupted during anything he was doing except saying Holy Mass. He was, he was really an apostle of confessions. And, you know, that piece that we have up on faithandculture.com today, an excerpt from uh, a spiritual conference by St. John Henry Newman on St. Philip Neri, really makes this point very well, Tim. Yeah, that's a beautiful piece, and I'll just refer everybody to that again. If, if you look at faithandculture.com, it's the kind of online journal of the Augustine Institute, and, and uh, there's a wonderful piece by St. Carl Newman, mm -hmm. John Henry Newman, who uh, loved Philip Neri, was moved by his example, and really embodied that in his own life. Right? He did. Yes, he, he absolutely did, right. So. Um, Newman became a kind of second founder of the oratory of St. Philip Neri. Uh, we'll have to talk about that. What is yeah, this oratory thing? Yeah. Uh, but in the 19th century, Newman uh, converts, uh, becomes a Roman Catholic in 1845, goes to Rome to study for about 18 months. Uh, he had been an Anglican minister and becomes a Catholic priest. And then um, during that time in Rome, he is able to discern with the help of various advisors that it's the example of St. Philip Neri that he wants to follow. Uh, so that's a, that's a Yeah, great. just so many fruits that keep coming up from Philip Neri's life. Mm -hmm. But I, going back to Philip and what is going to lead him to the oratory yes. in, in this, he's drawing young men, he's drawing these orphans, and he's getting them to come to the hospitals to do works of charity. That, that kind of gets them out of themselves, mm -hmm. doing good. Mm -hmm. Then he gets them to pray. I, mean, I, I love what Philip Neri does because when you get young boys together, just sitting in a chapel can be a bit... Uh, hard to get boys to want to pray, but he starts to do these little pilgrimages within Rome to the yes. seven churches in Rome. Mm -hmm. And so in the evenings, he'll just, let's go to, the, he just sets them off. Why don't you talk about that, that kind of praying on the move yes. that he, he had them do? Right, with, with song and uh, impromptu spiritual conferences and big picnics. Yeah, uh, it, yeah it was, he was certainly larger than life in that regard. But you know, what, when you're mentioning this and we think about the, um, the founding of the oratory, I'm reminded of, of John Paul II again, you know. When we think back of, 
uh, of uh, the young Carol Waitiwa, mm -hmm. and what, what was it that set him on the path that would give him to the Catholic Church and give him to the whole world as this beautiful saint? And, and it was that, that hidden lay saint, I believe, Jan Tiranowski, who, who was, was almost like a, a Philip Neary. He was like an urban hermit. He was a tailor in Krakow. And he gathered young men together and read holy books with them. And in particular, uh, the works of St. John of the Cross. And here's Carol Wojtyla at the age of about 18, 19, reading John of the Cross with this holy layman. And it, and it set his course for life. And there's a wonderful recurrence there of what Philip Neary's model was. So you're absolutely right that he was working with orphans and the youth and so forth. He also worked with young men of an age to be thinking about the priesthood. So men in their, in their 20s and into their 30s. And they would, they would come to uh, the church of San Girolamo where he was in residence for quite a few years after, after being ordained. And uh, over time, what grew up is this practice called the oratory. And, and it was called an oratory because they would pray together uh, in sort of formal ways, say, pray vespers, for instance, okay? And then they would gather in an upper room there for a meal and spiritual conferences and more prayer and reading from Lives of the Saints. And this would sometimes be three hours worth of activity in an, in an evening, Tim. And it was from this that, that priestly vocations started to just sort of burst forth. So there's a kind of ministry of friendship here. Uh, you spoke earlier about, about Neri as being the reformer of the city of Rome and the apostle of Rome. He's certainly doing that by uh, hearing confessions and giving spiritual advice in the context of the sacrament of penance. But he's doing it in a highly concentrated way with these men who are, who are seeing in him a model of priesthood and wanting to follow that model of priesthood uh, with a kind of apostolate of, of friendship. Uh, and, it's, and it's from that that the oratory is born um, later. So 1575, more or less, uh, is, is when that happens. Uh, and then Neri's not even the superior of it for another 10 years. So it's an, it, it grows just sort of like, it's like a little nut that grows into an oak tree. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing, and I, I think when I think of Philip, I get excited because I think about deeply devoted to prayer. So they make these pilgrimages to these chapels, and, mm -hmm. and Philip is a man of deep interior life and prayer. He wants, he really burns to have other people. So these the, the boys and the that he's mentoring, uh, these different people he's giving spiritual direction to, whether it be professionals or even priests and, and cardinals, cardinals, right? Yeah. Cardinals. I mean, he, he becomes known as a great confessor and spiritual director. Mm -hmm. And so he draws more and more people to himself, and he wants people to be able to pray. And then he's leading them, as you said, in the midst of that, they're singing songs. They're reciting stories of Scripture. They're acting out dramas and mm -hmm. plays. And he's, he wants to get people into the story of the faith, whether through song, whether through story, whether through dramas. Mm -hmm. He's just creatively creating that. And then all of that within the context of community. The, me, the shared meals, like you said, the picnics, the, the pilgrimages in, in, in groups. I mean, he would have groups of hundreds, sometimes thousands, yes. moving from one church, and they'd go there for a while, and if you saw people getting bored, he'd pick up and they'd pilgrimage off to the next church, yeah. singing all the way. And, and mm -hmm. I mean, what a witness to Rome. I mean, it was, it was a, just an incredible 
uh, gathering of mm -hmm. the, you talk about Catholic culture, mm -hmm. and, and Philip was able to take understanding the faith, praying and piety and community and put this all into a beautiful mix mm -hmm. that created a Catholic culture. Yeah, and that's, uh, there, there's a wonderful witness for our time there, Tim. Um, the, uh, you know, if we think about the young Charles Borromeo, who uh, comes to, to Rome as the Pope's nephew, um, incredibly wealthy, both from his family background in the north of Italy and then by virtue of being the Pope's nephew. You know, so these extraordinary apartments and uh, horses and carriages and dinner service and all of this sort of thing. And, and this young Borromeo meets Father Neri, you know, Filippo, and he sees something here. Here's a, here's a man who's chosen a, a hidden life of poverty, a life of simplicity, and, and it convinces Borromeo that this, this is the higher path, uh, that that even though the, the trappings of ecclesiastical rank are not in themselves bad, right, they, they nevertheless can get in the way of uh, the movement of the Spirit. And uh, so, yeah, you're, you're quite right. Culture is going to be born here out of this joyful simplicity, this getting back to the roots of the story of the faith. Yeah, it, to me, that that story is, is so exciting because you look at, he's having this influence on so many different souls. I mean, of course, Borromeo became one of the leading cardinals mm -hmm. at the Council of Trent and of the reform of the church. And so, you know, you, you look at someone like Philip and it gives you hope that uh, at times when the church ends up straying and, and its leadership and its people stray into a worldliness, mm -hmm. um, there's always hope to revive it and God sends uh, a St. Philip Neri to revive it. And you look at who's running around at the time of Philip. You have St. Ignatius of Loyola and the Jesuits. What, what a time of reform there. Mm -hmm. You have Charles Borromeo who comes in as a, a wealthy aristocrat who catches fire. I mean, mm -hmm. and, and that I think gives a lot of hope as we look at what happened at the time of the Reformation. There was clergy who go through their own conversions um, and help bring about renewal. And so those, those are the kinds of things that I think gives us hope today. I think people today, Chris, would look at, well, where's the church? There's a worldliness to the church mm -hmm. um, where the, that ardor that someone like Philip Neri has for prayer, for poverty, but not poverty for its own sake, but this life of simplicity to focus on relationships, to focus mm -hmm. on prayer, to be free mm -hmm. for Christ and available to Christ. That's the kind of poverty the church needs is the kind of focus and love the church needs today. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. You know, in Cardinal Seurat's uh, recent book here, The Day Is Now Far Spent, he talks about how important it is for us to get away from a, the bad habit of thinking about the church as a business, you mm -hmm. know. And uh, you, might, you might wonder, well, now why, why would Cardinal Seurat say something like that? You know, what, is he, what does he have in mind here? It's pretty obvious that the church doesn't run itself like, you know, Amazon, if it runs itself like a business, you know, I think our fear would be it runs itself like Kodak, you know. <laughs> yeah, way outdated. <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. But, but I think what, what the good Cardinal Seurat had in mind is that, you know, the church experienced an extraordinary growth from the late 19th century through the mid-20th century in the natural, supernatural way of children being born to Catholic families. And so the population of the Catholic Church 
expands from, you know, three or four hundred million people a hundred years ago to a billion people today. Uh, and, you know, some of that was conversion, but a lot of that was just people being born into the world. And then when there are children, there have to be schools. When there are schools, there have to be seminaries and universities and so on. And all of a sudden, the church wakes up in the 1960s and finds itself wealthy in property without ever having sought that. And so that, that's a very different problem than the Renaissance worldliness, which was a more corrupt sort of wealthiness. But, but it manifests it itself in, in similar ways. We get preoccupied with the institutional life of the church, and we forget what the soul of the apostolate has to be, the life of charity. So the church kind of becomes a victim of its own success. Yes. Because yeah. the church ministered to so many people so well, all this... <clears throat> all these people and all this money came, mm -hmm. all these property for schools, for hospitals, for Catholic charities, mm -hmm. all these wonderful works they were doing, but then an abundance. And so all of a sudden it, it kind of preoccupied people from the soul of the apostle, as you would say, mm -hmm. uh, to this kind of worldly management and that we can kind of manage the world mm -hmm. and run the world well. I mean, you think of the success of a place like Notre Dame and Notre Dame's success with its Right. billions of dollars of endowment, right. and yet it, it hasn't always kept to the core focus of its mission. Yes, that's right. No, right? That's so that's, that's always the challenge. Well, that's when God sends us the Philip Neres, right? And, mm -hmm. and I love, he's going to uh, live a life of, of holiness, but let's just talk about, you know, people, that he, he was ministering to people who were part of the aristocracy, who were, aristocracy, who were very worldly, mm -hmm. and I love some of the stories of his, his own sense of, um, humor that Philip had. You know, one time a, a, one of the matrons of Rome invited him to a dinner party and he heard that she was bragging to everybody that Philip was coming, right? And it's kind of like a, she had him as a, as a, as a pet, you know, like he's coming to, and so he, he shaved off half his beard uh, to go to this dinner yeah. party to, just to kind of humble himself yeah. and, and maybe the matron of the party as well. Yeah, that's really great, you know, and there's, there's a little lesson there about the importance of uh, priestly celibacy, right? Those of us who are married men, we could never get away with that kind of stuff. Indeed. Yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah, I know, he took himself lightly, and I, I love, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things in the, the movie of St. Philip Neri, which we had on form, we don't have on form right now, but hopefully we'll get it back on formed. But you can find it on Ignatius Press's catalog if you want to get the St. Philip Neri movie. But there's a great scene that's a true story that, you know, there was this couple that was known for gossiping and saying bad things about somebody behind their back, spreading these rumors. And he told them as penance, go get a chicken from the market. And I want you to, to go get that chicken at the market and then come back to me and just keep plucking its feathers out on the way. So they come to him uh, and the chicken's now been plucked of all the feathers. And what does he ask them to do? Yeah. Go, go get the feathers. Go get all the feathers and bring That's them right. back to me. And they said, well, this is impossible. We can't. The feathers are all over Rome. They've been blowing all over Rome now. And he said, that's exactly the case with your gossip. You can't get it back. Once you say something to somebody bad about somebody else, then they might speak it to somebody else. And all of a sudden, that bad reputation has been spread uh, throughout the city. And it's a, it's a great, great practical uh, human way of making the point about the power and the detriment of, of gossip, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. and Philip had that way. I mean, his confessions, what he would give his penances, were oftentimes like a, a, a physician of souls designed right for that person 
and write mm -hmm. for their affliction. It wasn't wrote things that he would give people. Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, and he was he, he, he was a master of, of the interior life, and what he's particularly interested in doing is helping people to to overcome pride in its various manifestations, right? Pride is, of course, the root of all sins. Um, and, you know, in, in, in some of us, uh, some of the time, most of us, some of the time, you know, pride, pride has these very ugly features as we, um, you know, think, think uh, the wrong way about our giftedness or think about ourselves in comparison with others and so forth. Um, but probably most of the time, pride is manifesting itself in very ordinary forms of vanity uh, that, are, that are unattractive and they hinder us from doing good when, when we might be doing good. And so Philip was constantly trying to pare away people's haughtiness, feeling of self-sufficiency, their self-importance. And this is where the pranks came in and the practical joke uh, mm -hmm. aspect came in. You know, just it, 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 we, we need to take ourselves less seriously paradoxically, so that we might take ourselves more seriously, mm. right? We, we have to diminish so that Christ's charity can increase. I'm going to have you talk about the Saints for Our Times or the True Reformers book. Yes. And I was just going to mention that the True Reformers video series, if you're interested more of St. Philip Neri or just the windows that the lives of the saints give us, there's such an inspiration for living the Christian life. There's a wonderful series called True Reformers. You can find it on form. It's, it's valuable, available for free for you. And uh, there's different things led by our own Christopher Bloom here. And you have a beautiful episode on St. Philip Neri that I recommend. If you want more on Philip Neri, uh, Chris does a wonderful job going through his life and some of the lessons for us, as well as many other saints like St. Teresa of Avila. So many saints of this period of the Reformation, St. Thomas More and many others. And then you want to mention the book. There, there's a book called uh, True, Reformers. True Reformers, right, by Jerome K. Williams, a wonderful narrative of the saints of this period. And it's, it's so important for us today. You know, the, the book was written for the 500th anniversary of Luther's break from the church, but it's just as relevant today uh, in what we're living through. It is. It's a wonderful book that I recommend to you because these true reformers tell us today how we can be true reformers in the church today. Thank you for joining us, and God bless. You can watch these interviews in video format by visiting form.org. Formed is an online Catholic streaming service created by the Augustan Institute and Ignatius Press with award-winning studies and parish programs, inspiring audio content, movies, eBooks, and family-friendly kids programming. To support the mission of the Augustan Institute, please visit missioncircle.org.